0: Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. At Greenlight Group, the biggest thing we care about is the biggest thing you care about, improving the quality of life with medical devices built with less risk. We know we're not physically there helping you to build devices, but our software is. So why wouldn't we build our software to be aligned with industry standards like ISO 1345 or 14971? We're the only medical device QMS solution provider to be named by G2 as a category leader for 13 quarters in a row. Because it's an odd number, I can't do the math and tell you how many years, but what does that mean? It means medical device companies who are out there making a difference believe we're making a difference and they're telling people about it. If you're looking to make a difference by getting quality, life-saving devices to market on an average three times faster, contact Greenlight Guru today to start the conversation.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is the founder of Greenlight Guru, John Spear, and joining me today is familiar face and voice on the Global Medical Device Podcast, Mike Drews. Mike is president of Vascular Sciences. So, Mike, welcome back. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure to speak with you and your audience. Absolutely. So today, we're going to dive into CDRH proposed guidances for fiscal year 2023. I, I know we've done that. You and I have talked about this maybe a time or two in years past. Maybe a good place to start before we dive too deep into the details of the proposed guidances from CDRH is what is this all about? Give folks a little bit of context or kind of a high-level summary of the what this is, why we're talking about this topic.
2: Well, great question, John. And as always, thanks for the opportunity to to talk about this with you and our audience today. Simply put, let's be honest, John, the topic of guidance documents to most people with an IQ of more than five is going to seem unimaginably boring. But I'm hoping that, you know, in the traditional John Spear, or Mike Drew style, we can kind of spice things up. And I have a few, you know, things to add to the discussion as well. But basically, this is you're right. This is something that FDA does typically on a once a year basis. They put out a list of what they think are the priorities for the coming year in terms of guidance documents. And that's exactly what they put out just about a week before we are doing this recording today. So, FDA did publish, more specifically, CDRH did publish their annual priority list for guidance documents. And we can provide a link to that list for our audience as part of the resources for this podcast. But basically, FDA divides these into two groups, the priority A group and the priority B group. These are the guidance documents that FDA intends to develop in the coming fiscal year, 2023. The difference between the A list and the B list is that the A list are the prioritized guidance documents that FDA intends to publish in the coming year, whereas the B list are the guidance documents that FDA intend to publish as resources permit in the coming year. Sure. So the A list are the, the number one priorities and the B list are the ones that FDA will do uh, depending on time and, and resources. And of course, John, as you know, that like all regulation, this is all subject to change. If sure. something like another COVID, for example, comes along, then that could, you know, change the calculus here tremendously. But that's basically the purpose. And just one last thing to mention, John, and then I'd be happy to hear your, your thoughts, or we can move on to the next question. In terms of how FDA has done in the past, have they achieved their goals? Well, if we just look at the current year. 2022, CDRH intended to publish 23 guidances, of which they actually published 13 of them. So that's about a 57% success rate. 10 of them were on the A list and three of them from the B list. So that's just sort of a little bit of a recent historical perspective as to how FDA has been performing. And I think, John, that's fair game to mention in our discussion here, because obviously one of FDA's most important jobs is to sort of judge a medical device company, in other words, make sure that the company is doing what they say they're going to do and support sure. what they're claiming and so on. Well, I think, John, that that street runs in two directions. Yeah. If FDA says that they're going to do certain things, then we should hold them accountable for doing right. those things. And when they don't do those things, we should you know, remind people of that.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. So you know, I've had a chance to, and folks, as Mike mentioned, we will provide a link to the uh, CDRH proposed guidance for fiscal year 2023 so that you can peruse and read through that at your leisure. I've had a chance to do so myself. And as Mike mentioned, it's sort of split into the A-list and the B-list. So uh, let's get into some of the details. So what is sort of the, I don't know, theme, but what are some of the things that stick out to you on the A-list?
2: Well, so on the A-list for the moment, for the coming year, just ticking through the list very quickly, and then I'll emphasize the ones that I personally think are the most important, and I'm going to go through these in the order that FDA presents them. Remanufacturing of medical devices, they're going to update that particular guidance. Okay, fine. That's not a big concern of mine. The next two are big concerns of mine, John, and these are both topics, related topics that you and I have talked about in several topics, uh, podcasts, having to do with COVID, and specifically the emergency use authorization. The first is the transition plan for medical devices that fall within enforcement policies issued during the COVID public health emergency. And the second is transition plan for medical devices issued emergency use authorizations or EUAs during the coronavirus disease 2019 public health emergency. So the second and third on FDA's priority list are both COVID-related, and you and I, John, yeah. have talked about this. I think this is obviously very, very timely, yeah. and we can provide links to our other podcasts where we dig into those topics in more detail if we want sure. to. Absolutely. Just to complete the priority list, cybersecurity in medical devices, cybersecurity, John, as you know, and as we've talked about before, is a big concern for a lot of companies today that are developing software components of existing devices or software as a medical device, SAMD. This particular guidance focuses on quality system considerations for for pre-market submissions when it comes to cybersecurity. So there are now a number of guidance that FDA puts out in the general area of cybersecurity. This particular one is focusing on quality. And I know as a a quality (laughs) guide, John, you probably have opinions on that one. right? Just closing off the list is content of pre-market submissions for device software functions. This is yet another topic that you and I have delved into in deep in other podcasts. So devices that contain software that perform these software functions. Fostering medical device improvement, FDA activities and engagement with the voluntary improvement program. Well, I don't know about you, John, or how familiar you are with this voluntary improvement program, but in the regulatory world, this is about as touchy-feely as you can get. In my opinion, this is just put out there by the FDA to kind of make people feel good. But from an engineering or a regulatory perspective, I've seen the draft of this. There's nothing in there of real substance that I think medical device companies need to worry about. And then the last one on the A list for final guidances is, which I think is a revision long overdue, is the final guidance on the Breakthrough Device Program, or the BDP, something that you and I have talked about many times before. And to be honest with you, John, although I think that the BDP program has been an extraordinarily successful program, kind of like the Orphan Drug Program, it's become too successful. And we really got to put some limits on that. I think that the FDA now is, is awarded as of late North of 500, I think approaching 600 BDP designations, which mm-hmm. I think is way, way, way too many. And I've made a number of specific recommendations on how we should tighten that program up because I personally believe that a BDP, unlike a 510k or de novo or PMA, where you just pick the regulatory boxes and you get a 510k or a de novo or a PMA, a BDP should not be that way. It's right. not everybody shows up gets a trophy. You right. know, so it should truly be for the you know the best Rector. of the best. Right. So those are the priorities for finalizing guidance for 2023 on the A-list. And then just very quickly, FDA putting out new draft guidances in the following areas, the Voluntary Malfunction Summary Reporting Program. This is something that you and I have talked about in the context of the PMA, for example. Clinical considerations for medical device pre-market submissions for opioid use disorder and selected updates for guidance for the Breakthrough Devices program. I just mentioned that. And then finally, the electronic submission template for de novo request submissions, which again is long overdue. And I think we need that for pre-subs. I think we need that for everything. I can't tell you how many of my customers, John, they, when I said to them that in order to make a submission for a pre-sub, for example, or a BDP, you have to take your file, put it on a memory stick, put it in a box, in my case, send it across the country, have them take it out of their box and put it into the, their their computer. I mean, you don't have to have a PhD in engineering, John, to appreciate that that's nuts. You know? uh, <laughs> so, yeah. yes, how is it that we're almost into 2023 and we're still operating that way? It, it just boggles the mind. Yeah. So that's a quick run-through of what's on the A list, John, before we move on to the B list. Any thoughts on any of those?
1: Well, a couple of things. Obviously, you know, that stick out, obviously, the COVID The transition plan. You know, this is something as you mentioned. You and I spoke about, and I guess I want to remind folks listening who maybe have uh, devices that were brought to market under the EUA for uh, COVID nineteen. I wouldn't wait for FDA to to develop this guidance document. To start making your plans. In fact, hopefully you've already been working towards the uh 510K or or De or whatever the appropriate and applicable pathways are for, for your product to keep those in the marketplace. So those things stick out. And uh, yeah, as you noted, I, I think, you know, the breakthrough. I mean, not everything should be considered a breakthrough. I mean, that seems like the floodgates are open. But I guess I'm curious, anything that's like Surprising or concerning or exciting in your point of view on on the A-list priorities?
2: Well, I guess you have to be a regulatory geek to consider this exciting. But
1: um... (laughs) we're trying to spice it up, Mike.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But I will be curious to see what of my or other people's recommendations that FDA takes into hand in terms of the BDP program. Because like I said, you know, it's become probably too successful and I think it needs to be tightened up. In terms of your comment on the EUA, I just want to reiterate one thing that you and I talked about in some of our podcasts on that topic, because it's a recurring problem to many of my customers. I had a new customer just come to me within the last couple of weeks who got an EUA on a device. And now in order to keep that device on the market, they submitted a 510K FDA came back with a 23-page additional information request, probably some 50 or 60 items on it, where FDA was looking for for more information. And of course, that's when the company came to me. They didn't come to me before that; they came to me after that, and they said, "Mike, we don't understand. We got the EUA. Why are we having these problems? You know, with the 510k?" And I said, "Simple. Because an EUA is is is, does not equal a 510k. An EUA Uh, is a temporary authorization. It is not a clearance." Or granted like a de novo or approved as a PMA, the bar for the EUA is demonstrably lower than it is for a five ten K or de novo or PMA. So that's something that our audience, I think, needs to keep in yeah. mind.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk. Uh, I guess high level a little bit about uh, what's on the B list. You know, per what you shared a moment ago, at least you know for fiscal year 2022, there were some of those B-list items that, that did get published. So, you know, one can expect maybe that some of these B-list items will get in front of us in industry uh, in this fiscal year as well. So what's on the, the B-list?
2: Correct. Well, of, for the current year, three guidances from the B-list were, were published. So we'll see what happens in 2023. But what's on the B-list in terms of the the final guidance, this first one is a bit esoteric, peroxide based contact lens care products so obviously that's going to apply to a very very narrow part of our of our industry but what that means to me when fda finalizes a guidance like this is that there have been problems in this particular area and therefore fda is putting out a guidance which they should in order to try to prevent these problems from happening in the future so you always have to ask yourself when it comes to regulation or guidance in particular why is fda putting these things out more often than not They're putting them out because there have been problems in the past. Most of the times, guidances don't come out prophylactically. I wish they would, but they're trying to prevent problems from the past. So that's the only one that's on the final guidance for the B list. Other draft guidances, a couple of them in the category of biocompatibility. You and I have talked about biocomp many times before. As our audience knows, I'm a subject matter expert for FDA in a few different areas, one of them being biocompatibility. I think this is going to be a particularly important guidance, chemical analysis for biocompatibility assessment. Basically, the idea here is to... Use the chemical analysis of material as sort of a surrogate biomarker, if you will, for actual in vivo animal cytotox or or some right. other kind of testing. So this is a question that I get from my customers a lot. I think it's going to be a, a good guidance for the audience to take a look at. Marketing submission recommendations for change control. For specifically artificial intelligence and machine learning enabled devices, which, when you think about it, John, and you and I have talked about AI before as well, change control when it comes to artificial intelligence. Well, by its very nature, AI is supposed to be changing. It's supposed to be evolving. It's supposed to be changing over time. But with this archaic concept that FDA instituted a few years ago, this locked algorithm, we've essentially sucked the artificial intelligence out of the device. So it'll be interesting to see. I don't anticipate anything new here, John. It's going to be sort of a rehash of what people have been talking about, but that's on the B list. Evaluation of sex-specific and gender-specific data in medical device political studies. Okay, that's sort of a politically correct kind of a thing to look at today. The accreditation scheme for conformity assessment pilot program. That's something that maybe we can talk about in the future when we get a little further down that road. Basic safety and essential performance of medical electrical equipment and medical electrical systems and so on. So it's basically it's a it's an update of the the basic electrical safety requirements. And then finally, biocompatibility testing for medical devices. This is also part of that ASCA pilot program, the ASCA pilot program. I think we did a podcast on that last year, I believe, John, I maybe believe we so, should too. do a refresh on that because now we have electrical safety, biocompatibility, some clinical stuff coming into that. So this is going to be something that I think our, our industry is going to be taking advantage of more and more as we continue. So that, that kind of rounds up, you know, what's on the the list of guidance from FDA, the A list, as well as the B. Any uh, further comments on that second round of, of guidance, as I mentioned?
1: Just a couple of reactions. So the chemical analysis for biocompatibility, I mean, that's to me that, that at least reading the title, that sounds very encouraging, maybe so much so that it might even harken back to a point in time where one used to be able to leverage some chemical analysis, much more so from a biocompatibility, a substantial equivalence point of view, and then maybe where we are currently. So, you know, I'm kind of Uh, anxious to see what what that guidance has to hold and then to your point about the ai machine learning i mean the way that's handled today from an fda perspective is doesn't really lend itself to for the software to truly be ai or machine learning so i'm optimistic that hopefully there's some things that will find its way into this draft guidance as well that will allow industry or, or products that have AI machine learning to actually be a step closer to being AI machine learning products. So, you know, those, those seem like, you know, some exciting things. And then the, the Ask a program, it obviously a lot of, it seems like there are potentially will be a lot of momentum on initiatives to further support that initiative as well. So, yeah. Well,
2: one of the things I would just amplify, what you just mentioned, John, I'll use the AI as an example. A lot of people ask me, well, where does FDA get the ideas and the information that go into these guidances? A lot of people think that it comes from the FDA. In most cases, it does not come from the FDA. In fact, it comes from us. It comes from industry. And what FDA often does, and I've been involved in this process as an FDA consultant many, many times, is FDA will take a look at the first a few submissions in a new medical device area, for example, and pick out of them what they like in those submissions and put them into the guidance. Right. And the reason why I bring that up, John, is because, while well, at least in my opinion, the concept of the locked algorithm, which FDA has adopted largely and industry has largely followed thus far, Is truly an archaic concept because it is holding us back. One of the things I'm very proud of is some of the AI software devices that I've been involved with recently do not use the concept of the locked algorithm and, in fact, purposely allow the software to do what it's intended to do, that is to learn and to change and to evolve. and obviously, you can appreciate, John, these were not always easy things to get through the FDA, but we've got a few of them through now. And I'm hoping that some of that, how we did that and the controls that we put into place and so on, will go into that guidance. So So, one of the things, you know, not to be too arrogant here, but I'm very proud of the fact that, you know, many of the things that I've done in submissions over the years, whether it's with AI or biocomp or other kind of testing, has actually gone into guidance for the future. Something to think about.
1: No, it's very cool. So as you look at the A-list and the B-list for fiscal year 2023, is there a topic or a subject or or something that you see that maybe is missing from the A-list and the B-list?
2: Well, it's a good question, John. I like questions like that because it forces to look beyond, you know, what we're given, beyond the answer and say what well, is not there. Obviously FDA does not publish any public explanation as to how they came up with these particular devices, but If you use a little reverse engineering, if you use a little common sense, you can identify, as I said before, typically it's where most of the problems have occurred in the past or where they're getting most of the questions and so on. So before I give you my opinion, do you have any thoughts in this industry about what you think is missing or what on that list?
1: You know, best informed to answer your question, it's almost like I should have the whole list of all of the existing guidances memorized, um, which I do not. So, <laughs> but Neither I, yeah, do I. I do that's think that's
2: why the, that's why, John, there's a guidance document database so that you exactly. and I don't have to memorize such esoteric trivia like
1: exactly. I think you know, the the software as a med device. I mean, to your point, I you know, I was going to ask you this, but you kind of answered that. I was going to ask, how does you know, FDA and CDRH determine the, the prioritization? But, you know, we see some trends and themes over the years. We've seen more emphasis on things like cybersecurity and software as a med device. You know, those are usually jump to, to the top of the list. You know, you, you've, you highlighted the breakthrough device program and the de novo, you know, and it seems like if I recall in years past, there's always some sort of guidance about some type of 510K or the safety and the technology program and so on and so forth. I don't see anything that jumps to top of mind, to me anyway, it's like, oh, wow, this is a glaring omission or or deficiency. You know, I suspect that, you know, things around like pre-submissions and things, I mean, uh, that's something that seems like, you know, seems like the industry has embraced that pretty well, but those guidances seem at least... Last time I read through them, seemed a little bit confusing and convoluted. And if I recall, something doesn't have a a pre-submission template, right? Is it a? I could be speaking incorrectly, but I know there's a pre-submission guidance for five ten k. I think there's one for for PMA. But I think you're
2: talking about the RTA checklist, the refuse to accept checklist. Yeah,
1: maybe. Yeah, but aside from that, I don't know. I I don't. I don't see anything that's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this isn't on the list. Somebody's you know, are kind of head scratchers, like why is this on the list? But to your point, a lot of times it might be a reaction to some issue or or, or trend that FDA is seeing in the industry.
2: Well, perhaps John, we can spin this question in a slightly different direction. Instead of talking about what guidances FDA should or should not be putting out there, how about asking the question? And I. And I really don't hear anybody in our industry asking this question, but should, in fact, FDA be in the business of putting out any guidance documents? Because one could easily argue that it's really not FDA's job to help a company bring a product on the market. On the contrary, if you kind of think of the relationship between the company and the FDA, like the legal system, where it's the prosecution and the defense Is it the defense counsel's job to kind of help the prosecutor prove their case? Right. You know, absolutely not. (laughs) And even if they could, they're not going to do that. Now, don't get me wrong. When it comes to guidances to explain the mechanisms of interacting with the FDA, for example, you mentioned the pre-sub process. I have absolutely no problem with FDA putting out a guidance and FDA should put out a guidance explaining okay you want to have a pre-submission meeting here's how you do it here's what you need to submit to us and yada 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 but when it comes to some of these other kind of more technological or engineering or clinical based guidance documents should fda be telling companies for example what kind of engineering or biological tests that they should do to show the safety and the efficacy of a medical device right in my opinion john is a professional biomedical engineer I don't need, I don't want, I don't expect FDA to, to help me do that. If they want to offer me some suggestions, I'll be happy to take those under advisement. But at the end of the day, you know, just like a good surgeon, a good surgeon is responsible for know what they're doing. So I don't know, John, that's probably a, a different spin than this than a lot of people in this industry would think. Most people, you know, want to be led like sheep, you know, say, told right. what to do, do this, do this, do this, and don't think about anything, just do it. But uh, any thoughts on on that?
1: Well, I mean, it it reminds me of things that you and I have have chatted about in the past. I mean, I think a lot of uh, folks in industry almost look to the FDA as there's kind of like a student teacher kind of relationship. I think this is a metaphor that you've used where I turn in my assignment and I'm I'm waiting for FDA to give me my grade. I I think as long as this sort of behavior is perpetuated or continues with CDRH, I think it's going to allow that that sort of relationship between industry to continue. I mean, industry as long as FDA keeps saying here are new guidance for this and this and this and this, our industry is going to kind of like sit back and say, all right, well, let's sit back and wait and see what FDA is going to tell us to do next, right? So, you know, it's going to continue the the cycle, I think, in, in some respects. But I am curious. Though, I mean, I know like there are other standards organizations, you know, both in the U.S. and and you know, globally. You know, it might be a whole different topic of of a different conversation, but sort of tangential here is obviously these other standard organizations have different focuses and priorities, uh, you know, on which they create standards and guidances and whatnot. And, you know, some of these are more led by or our industry is more involved with the creation of some of those. But how much correspondence or communication or collective wisdom is shared amongst these other standards, organizations, and regulatory bodies? Do you have any context to that?
2: Yeah, great question, John. I would say that there is obviously a fair amount of, of cross-pollination, if you will, yeah. between the FDA and the other regulatory authorities around the world with these ISO and ASDM and UL and, you know, the litany of other standards organizations. As a matter of fact, as you probably know, many of these organizations have committees that that are responsible for developing the new standards and on the committee. You might have a variety of people from FDA. You might also have a variety of people from industry. And by the way, this is something that I encourage many of my customers. If you're working in an area, make sure that you have somebody, a a technical person or a clinical person from your organization being represented on the committee that's setting up the standard because they can influence Know how that standard is put together, maybe in a way that might be beneficial to you. This is a spin on what I call competitive regulatory strategy,
1: or certainly um, be in the trenches to understand how the discussion evolved to get to the point of you know what what got put down in the standard itself. So there's you know some clarity on the interpretation of things for sure.
2: Absolutely correct. Yeah. yeah, absolutely correct. But getting back to the the previous thread for for just a moment, you know I said that in my opinion, you know FDA really You know, it shouldn't be in the business of using its time and resources to put out a lot of the guidances that they do. That's industry's job in FDA's defense. There are a lot of people in this industry. Now, again, I'm stereotyping here. I'm, I'm generalizing, but there are a lot of people that, quite frankly, do not know what they're doing. And I literally mean that. And I'll just give you one of my many favorite examples. We talked a little bit earlier today about biocompatibility and some of the biocompatibility guidances that are coming out from FDA in the next year. Well, as a subject matter expert for biocompatibility for FDA, I'm privy to seeing some of the biocomp guidances before they come out in draft form. And I remember, I think maybe it was about two or possibly three years ago, FDA issued a a biocompatibility guidance focusing on nightmare. And they asked me, they asked other people what they thought, but they asked me about it. And I said, this is fine. I have no problem about it. But they said, there's nothing in this guidance that it was not in my biomaterials textbook that I used as a graduate student 30 years ago. And they said, yeah, Mike, you're exactly right. But you would be amazed how many people don't know that. So That regrettably, John, is I think why FDA does have to put out so many guidances and indeed why we have so much regulation, because I hate to, you know, some people might say, oh, my God, this guy is, you know, being very, very critical, very harsh. But we got a lot of people in this business that don't know what they're doing. I had one other quick example. This is an extreme example, I'll admit. But I had somebody come to me once, this was a a new customer at the time, and they were developing a permanent implant, a device that was going to go inside somebody's body for the rest of their life. And I was going through that with them, the checklist, you know, have you done this? Have you done that? Have you done this testing and that testing? And then we got to the topic of biocompatibility. And I said, where are you on your biocomp testing? And they said, what's that?
1: Oh my goodness.
2: (laughs) You're laughing, John. You appreciate my not so to use of humor. Now, again, I would like to think it does not take an MD or a PhD or an RAC after somebody's name to appreciate that. Gee, maybe it might not be a bad idea if you're talking about putting a device inside somebody's body for the rest of their life. It might not be a bad idea to ask the question: How is the body, more specifically the yeah. immune system, going to react with the materials of that device? But I guess again, I, I guess John, they uh, they don't teach that in Cool, like they used to. <laughs> I don't know.
1: <laughs> I don't know. Like that's anyway. Um, a couple other thoughts. I mean, obviously, we're talking about you know proposed guidances that FDA is prioritizing for fiscal year 2023. And when you went through the high level, the A list and the B list on each, uh, there was confirmed. There was. The list with an A, the A list that were final guidance and the items that were draft guidance. And then the B list had the same thing, final and guidance. And I know the answer because you and I have talked about this, but it might bear repeating for those that maybe haven't heard us talk about this before. But what's the big deal? What's the difference between a final guidance and a draft guidance?
2: Yeah, great question, John. And thank you so much for bringing that up because this is another constant source of confusion to a lot of my customers. And I suspect a lot of people in our audience, and that is many people, including FDA, they try to differentiate between a final guidance and a draft guidance. Well, the simple reality is from the Mike Drew's perspective, there's absolutely no difference between the two. I don't care what's stamped across the big letters across the front page, final draft, whatever, all guidance, indeed, all regulation is very evolutionary it's a work in progress it's constantly unlike a locked algorithm it's constantly changing constantly evolving as we learn more information i can't tell you john how many customers come to me and they say mike we've done everything that is listed in this final guidance and yet it doesn't seem to be enough and i say to them in response john to quote a famous politician i feel your pain but why do you think that final means final it does not mean final i can't tell you how many examples where FDA has put out a final guidance. The de novo, for example. I believe off the top of my head, I could be wrong on the number, but I believe there were two or possibly even three de novo guidances that were marked final. And yet, for some reason, there was another guidance that came out after the previous final guidance. So I've said to FDA many times as a consultant, please stop using the terms final and draft in the context of guidance. You just say guidance. That's exactly right. Because it's just confusing people. But unfortunately, they just continue to perpetuate that.
1: Well, and hopefully folks listening in industry can appreciate that, even though the words create confusion. Because you know, think about how we operate within our own companies. I mean, we have policies and procedures and, and drawings and specifications and whatnot, uh, a whole litany of documents and records. And we put those things under virgin control because guess what? From time to time, they change and they need to be updated. So if you have a document or something within your company that has never been revised, then, well there might be an issue with that document, you know, things evolve and change and interpretation involves a change. So, here's
2: by speaking of version control, John, here's one of my many pet peeves with FDA when it comes to putting out new documentation, including new guidances. If you have a draft version and a final version, or even if it's just, you know, multiple versions of the same document, right? Please, by all means, do us the professional courtesy of putting, You know, a page or a couple pages at the beginning, identifying specifically what has changed between the previous version and the current version. I can't tell you the number of companies that I work with where they'll have somebody typically a a low level. I use a, a graduate student to do this or an intern where you will literally take the two guidances and you will go through them page by page, section by section, sentence by sentence to identify where have the changes been made. That is no necessary. necessary. Yeah. That that's an insult to anybody's intelligence. So, give us a summary of what those changes were. I don't think that's an unreasonable rule.
1: No, I don't think so. It's just I, I think it falls under what would be expected of us in industry, right?
2: What's good for the goose is good for the gander, John.
1: <laughs> All right. And
2: here's so, a here's a related question before we wrap this up. Yeah. Another comment or another question that I get from a lot of my customers, John, and that is: if something is listed in the guidance, must we do it? How would you answer that question, John? If there's something in a guidance that says, you know, a, do a particular kind of a test or something like that, as a manufacturer, must you do it? Must you follow the guidance?
1: Well, I forget the skill sometimes, but as any good uh, medical device, professional, quality, regulatory, what, what have you, my initial reaction is it depends. But, you know, that, that one is a, a confusing topic for a lot of folks. So it's a question that I get asked quite often, too. And I, I answer with this, you know, the regulations state the the thou shalt, you know, the criteria that one must demonstrate. Guidance is helpful because it is an interpretation of that regulation, of the applicable regulations. To your point, though, that interpretation evolves. I mean, the act of getting a guidance document to draft or final or any status where it's put out to industry, I can't imagine the red tape and the layers of bureaucracy that it has to go through to get to that point. So the reality is by the time that guidance gets in front of our, our screens to read, is there's a good chance that some of that's outdated. So don't take it as as gospel truth. If you've heard Mike and I speak over the years on the Global Medical Device podcast, you know one of the things I think we always try to encourage folks to do is you've got to think for yourselves. If a guidance tells you to do something that just does not make sense and is not appropriate or applicable, then don't just follow it blindly. But if it does make sense and it describes a methodology or an approach or, or you know or, or certain criteria or, or or what have you, then you know, by all means lean on that. So I think you know, first and foremost, use your head, think for yourself.
2: I could not agree more, John, and you ticked off a few things that I'll just real quickly uh, throw some gasoline on for the benefit of our audience. First of all, a lot of people describe guidance as FDA's current thinking on blah, blah, blah. Well, oftentimes that's not the case because guidances can take a long time to come out and don't even get me started how many lawyers they have to go through before they, they come out. But more importantly, a lot of guidances are years or sometimes even decades old. So to consider that FDA's current thinking may uh, be of a a bit of a leap. More importantly, John, back to my original question, do you have to do what's in the guidance? The short answer is absolutely not. The regulation, specifically the CFR, the Code of Federal Regulation, that's binding. You, You need to do that regulation if it makes sense. The guidance is not regulation. And this is something that a lot of people do not understand. Guidance is guidance. It's what I like to call the commentary, if you will, on the regulation, but it's not the regulation itself. And so it says now on the newer guidance, it didn't say this on the the older guidances, but now on all new guidances, it says, I don't have a guidance in front of me, but something like these are FDA's non-binding recommendations, which basically means that sort of legal code speak, it basically means we think that you should do these things that are in this guidance unless you come to us and you convince us otherwise. So as we've talked about before, John, when it comes to guidance or even regulation, this is not something to be followed blindly, you know, just like a computer executing lines of code, one after another, always ask yourself the question, does this make sense? So bottom line, even if something is listed in a guidance, doesn't necessarily mean that you have to do it. If it doesn't make sense, then go to the FDA as a pre-sub or something else and say, hey, here's what the regulation says, or here's what the guidance says. It doesn't make sense in our case, or maybe it's not possible in our case, and here's what we're going to do instead. That's the way this game is supposed to be played, at least in my in my world, John.
1: Yeah, and and I I'll add to that. I think me as medical device professional, I should take on the responsibility for being aware of what guidances there are out there in, in CDRH uh, world, and and frankly, you know, standards and and whatnot as well, even beyond FDA. So I should have an awareness of of what is out there, and specifically what might be. Applicable to my product, and I should understand where uh, I might choose a path that's that's counter to the commentary that's described within those guidance documents, so that I can explain my rationale, my approach. So that would be advice that I have to folks be aware of. I agree,
2: that. John, and and being aware. As a matter of fact. Uh, I don't know if you did this on purpose or not, John, but you set me up to give a a quick promo for my upcoming webinar with Greenlight Guru in just a couple of weeks on regulatory due diligence, because what I'm going to do in that webinar is go through a lot of my Mike Drew's tips and tricks on how to make sure that you are aware of what you should be aware of before going into the FDA. You know, one of the things I pride myself on, John, is before I go to the FDA, I want to make darn sure that there's nothing that FDA knows that I don't know. In other words, if FDA knows about something that I don't know, then shame on me, I'm not doing my job. And it's amazing to me how many people do not do that preparation when we go to the FDA. And there are a lot of tools out there that you can use to be aware. And when it comes to guidance, there's no excuse. I mean... Can you imagine, John, I've seen this happen before, where a company comes to the FDA for a pre-sub, for example, and they are not aware of a particular guidance that applies to their kind of device or technology. I mean, I don't know about you, John, but if you needed surgery and your surgeon was not aware of all of the different surgical options that they had and the advantages and disadvantages of each, I'm guessing that you might not want that person cutting on you. Uh, So it's the same thing for us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. All right. So Wrapping things up on the CDRH proposed guidance for fiscal year 2023, what else is important? You know, what should we reemphasize or what do we miss?
2: Well, in that last theme that we just talked about, John, be aware, be aware not just of the guidances that are out there now, but be aware, as you and I talked about today, of the guidances that are in the queue for coming out in the future. Because this is another opportunity for industry to work collaboratively with the FDA. If you go to the FDA with a pre-sub and you're working in one of the areas that we talked about, like, for example, artificial intelligence or or biocompatibility, you might as sort of a tangential conversation, bring up the new guidance that's coming out and say, oh, by the way, you know, I saw that FDA published this this priority list for next year. Right. And, you know, these, this guidance is going to be applicable to us in the future. You know, can we talk about that? So I think that really demonstrates professional competence. And then the very last thing that I'll mention, John, just to kind of reiterate something that a lot of people are not aware of when it comes to guidance, using guidance as a tactical weapon against your competition. This is another example of what I call competitive regulatory strategy. We can do this with the de novo. We can do this with special controls. We can do this in a lot of different ways. But influencing FDA, for example, to take a test that you've done for part of your submission and put it into a guidance that then is going to now, quote unquote, require, and I'm putting the word require in air quotes because it's in a guidance, so you can't require it, but quote unquote, require the test to be done by your competitors well if you design that test in a certain way so that it's difficult for your competitors to match now you've just put a great big speed bump in their road using regulation is a tactical weapon as a competitive weapon against your competition something i call competitive regulatory strategy i do it all the time most people in this industry john at least in my experience they never even think in those terms
1: yeah, that is true so i
2: hopefully today we've taken you know as i said at the beginning what on the surface seems like an unimaginably boring topic and that is of guidance documents you know this is can be exactly what gives regulatory a bad name you know but you know kind of spice it up a little bit you know get a little twists and turns and you know the examples that you provided the examples that i provided hopefully we got people to, to think about these things in a in a little bit different way than they did before
1: yeah i hope so as well and so thanks for for diving into the proposed guidances for next fiscal year and diving through some of the details on the A list and the B list. And and folks, I want to thank you all for listening to this episode of the global medical device podcast, and certainly look out for that webinar that, that Mike mentioned coming up. I believe it's happening in mid November. Uh, you probably know the exact date, but if you're November, 2022, so if you happen to listen to this podcast. After the webinar, that's okay, because all of these things are evergreen on the Greenlight Guru website. Uh, you can just go to the greenlight.guru webpage, and you can look through the resources and see you know every webinar that Mike and, and other uh, guests have conducted at Greenlight Guru or for Greenlight Guru, as well as listen to every single episode of the Global Medical Device podcast as well. So be sure to check that out. Uh, And as always, I appreciate you all listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is
0: John Spear, the founder at Greenlight Guru. Thank you. Improving the quality of life. I know we say it a lot here at Greenlight Guru, and I'll bet it's something you probably said at your company too. We help babies breathe at night. We give you another day to be a dad. We give you back your eyesight. Those are some of the things the medical device industry and our customers are able to say because that's what they're doing. They're improving the quality of life for these individuals. Greenlight Guru is the only quality management software designed exclusively for the medical device industry. We built our software around standards like ISO 13485 and risk-based principles to help you bring safer devices to market three times faster. We're building the tools that will make it easier for you to build yours. If you're ready to find out how to improve the quality of life, contact Greenlight.guru today.